0: Then it runs like you know, intro music. <laughs> but once we finish that, then we go. All right, welcome to the welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Doctor Rich. I should say to be more perform more formal, or the incoming Professor Rich. Yes, my, my friends are all very excited that they
1: finally get to call me the professor. That is exciting. Since I, it it is. It's it's been surreal that it's that it's real and it's happening. But yeah, I'm gonna. Gonna be an assistant professor
0: at UConn starting January. That's awesome. You know, it's when you start graduate school, it's always like the, it's so far away that you don't really think about it. You're just like you know digging not into your graduate story. school, like Dick all the postdoc. Course. It felt you know just so far away when you're
1: applying for dozens upon dozens of jobs, you know, for years on end. Yeah, um, but no, it's and it's very very exciting. I I fell in love with the place when I interviewed, which you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed yeah. to let yourself get that excited. Um, but I really did. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to get to start. The rich lab. I need to come up with a better acronym, but the rich lab, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because that, that has implic my my last name has implications. It's like, you no, know, like we actually need your funding. We don't have independent.
0: Uh, i uh, not actually <laughs> one day. The rich lab will be the rich lab. You know, <laughs> here's here's hoping that will that would solve a lot of problems. Yeah. So you're doing so correct me if I'm wrong but the primary focus is computational based neuroscience right yeah so I mean I'm I'm entirely computational I the
1: plan is to be a complete dry lab I have no experimental training My PhD was in applied and interdisciplinary mathematics so it was Uh very far afield from that but my my application was always neuroscience and as I progressed through my PhD I sort of Gradually realized, you know, what was interesting to me was the applied part of the program, not the mathematics part of the program. So I very quickly, you know, became more of a neuroscientist than a mathematician. Um, and that's what led me to sort of, you know, pursue my postdoc positions that were more, that were still computational, but were more neuro focused, were in research hospitals. Um, and yeah, so it's more, I'm, you know, I'm using the math as a tool, running, running a dry lab. Um, but the the plan is to to be really collaborative, and that's one of the things I'm excited about at UConn. Is there's a lot of a lot of natural overlap with stuff I've done, stuff I'm interested in doing, where I can really interface my my skill set with the type of stuff you do. You know, actually
0: sitting down at the at the rig and patching patching cells and things like that. Brain fishing, as we call it. No, <laughs> but no, it's it's cool. You know, it's you almost see a lot of math ma- like, ma- people with a mathematics background be some of the most innovative in neuroscience. At least I I notice it more so between that compared to, you know, strictly biology or physiology or something like that. I think there seems like there's a bigger turnover of or there's a bigger translation of mathematics to neuroscience compared to some of the other fields.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a there's a reason that math is used in everything. Right. There's a reason that every scientific field uses math, that there are basic fundamental principles and fundamental theories that sort of just happen to seem to work across so many disparate branches of science and engineering and whatnot. And It is, you know, that what you can say, like math is like the, the language of the universe or something, you know, silly and cheap or cheesy like that. But, you know, in a way, it's true. And the more we think of our brains as a complex system that we can approach using, you know, not just mathematical, but computational, you know, tools, you know, the more computer science based tools that aren't as, you know, mathy and analysis y. Um, it, it starts to, it, it allows us to reveal some things that are a little bit surprising. And it allows us to come up with those sort of like, oh, duh moments where it's like, once I've, once I've seen that, yeah, of course, that's how it worked. But you, I never would have actually thought that way until I brought this sort of other perspective into the, you know, into the picture. And that's what you know, that's what I love to do is sort of say, okay, here's this really interesting. So here's a really interesting problem. Can we come up with something, you know, almost you know, deceptively simple answer using some of these other tools? And again, it's one of those. A lot of the times, it's oh, duh, why didn't I think of that before? But it needed that, you know, that new perspective, that sort of mathematical, you know, support. Like, oh, you like, math says this isn't, this should work. Why don't you go, you know, search over here? And lo yeah. and behold, there's something interesting lying over there.
0: So so that leads me into three questions and I'll separate them. You know, so the first one <clears throat> is just, you know, a, out of general curiosity when you're, you know, as an undergrad or doing or did you do graduate in mathematics or was it just undergrad in mathematics?
1: Both. So yeah, so Both. undergrad, I was a math major, and then it was the it was in the math department, but the program okay. was applied and in interdisciplinary mathematics.
0: Okay. For my so, PhD. The, so then, you know, you're making equations and you're you're doing all this fancy math stuff. How did you know the interest in neuroscience, like where did that come from?
1: So I was I had my as an undergrad, my interests were just extremely wide ranging, where I went in planning to simultaneously be a math major and be pre-med and eventually figure out which one of those I wanted to do. And I do not recommend anyone do that because it is way too challenging of a workload. Um, And then on top of that, while I was, you know, an undergrad at Duke, I was also getting a philosophy minor, just because that's always been a, you know, a love of mine. And I was also writing for the student newspaper covering the Duke basketball team. So I had a very, you know, wide array of interests. But the, you know, the medical side of things was like, okay, you know, I'm taking the basic biology classes, you know, I'm getting that sort of foundation. And then I was just always fascinated by the brain. I was always fascinated by questions about how we think. Um, the, the best class i took while I was at duke you know to this day i'll say was philosophy of the mind and you know just understanding you know what we think how we think we understand you know how our brains and how our minds work and how that informs you know how we view the world um and so the, the i mean I, I sort of you know backed my way into it i got quite quite lucky where i did a you know summer reu program between my sophomore and junior years it was very industrial math focused hated it (laughs) between my junior and senior years did another reu but that was more math bio focused and ended up being having the sort of neuroscience focus it was you know we were it was an undergrad you know six-week project so it was very simple you know Let's model four neurons and see if they synchronize and pretend this is the basal ganglia and we're modeling parkinson's i look back on it now and sort of <laughs> chuckle um but i it was just a, a very much a eureka moment like okay like here's the thing that combines all these interests here the thing here's like i wanted to i was interested in medicine because i wanted to actually have an application wanted to be making a real world impact and not want to be a you know mathematician just sort of sitting in the side of the room thinking which is a very necessary. I always say it as a joke and then have to, you know, back off it's like that that's not meant to be derisive. That's <laughs> those, that's very important and I don't do that just because I can't do that those people are way smarter than I am. Um but it, you know, it combined the way I like to use math as a tool with questions and problems that I had always been interested in, you know, it sort of filtered in the sort of philosophy element of things where you know, I just love thinking about how we think and what the implications of understanding our brain better are. Um, so yeah, that just sort of, you know, checked all the boxes for me. And then from there, I got very lucky where the the person I was working on the summer at U for, you know, sort of helped guide me through the grad school process and said, you know, here are the places to apply that have computational neuroscientists and math departments. And I ended up uh, working out quite nicely from there.
0: Yeah, it's you know it. I it took me probably up until a couple of years ago until I actually appreciated philosophy for what it was. I when I, I remember I took philosophy for the first time as an undergrad and I had a very like I was like a mechanic growing up and stuff. And so like once I got to a philosophy class, I remember that the teacher to this day, I still remember she said, you know, you have to think or you have to learn to think how to think and i was like i don't <clears> th- i don't think you want to know what i'm thinking right now cuz i'm so confused and <laughs> <in> like <laughs> and then you know finally up until like way past phd i was like oh now i finally kind of understand it was more about how do you create these big picture questions and things and i now i have sort of a, a an appreciation for philosophy that i never did before but when it comes to computational neuroscience or mixing mathematics in order to inform or predict or to give information about an actual living biological system. I think, you know, there's a bunch of different levels when it comes to understanding how, especially the brain works, because it's such a complex organ when you try to, to, to figure out how it works. And it's kind of black boxy for a lot of stuff, you know, whereas with some of the neck down systems, you can sort of isolate it and look at input, output, and you can figure out the mechanisms a little bit easier because there's maybe less emergent mechanisms when, when it comes to that stuff. But, but when you're, you know, when you're looking at the different levels of the neuroscience, whether it be in vitro, you know, isolating single parts of, of a neural network or a neuron itself, and then you move it into sort of an in vitro network, which then has a bunch of different levels depending on how much of the network you're, you're looking at. And then you have, you know, the in silico system, which is a lot of what you're doing with the the computational stuff running, essentially, how does the brain work through a computer? Is there, you know, sort of like uh, just for for the listeners that are a little bit less familiar with with the basis of computational neuroscience itself, is there like a, a, a quick and dirty definition of computational neuroscience that sort of explains how a computer makes a brain or understands a brain
1: oh well i mean i think if any computational neuroscientist claimed that their computer made a brain they'd get (laughs) laughed out of whatever room uh they they might rescind my my job offer if i say say that i'm doing that uh because i but but i that gets to an important point which is you know compute any computational study any modeling study whatever biological system you're looking at it's an it's always inherently an abstraction of the biology and that's something that i i think the most interesting computational neuroscience is embraces that and says i am not simulating the brain i am not you know replicating the brain on my computer i'm not even replicating you know this this neural network or this neuron exactly because if i were to do that I'm not sure I'd gain that much, right? Mm. If I were to, you know, if I were to take a system that you're patching and you're you're struggling to figure out, okay, how exactly does this neuron work? I'm going to do all these different patch experiments, and I just said, okay, let me let me replicate that exactly on my computer. But then the question is, okay, well, what new can I add to the picture if I've just created something that is? just as complex and challenging to understand as this system that you have experimental. The way I view computational neuroscience is it is inherently something that is idealized and abstracted from the biological system. And for me, that's a feature, not a bug. That's something that allows us to ask questions and perform experiments in do explorations that we ne- we couldn't do in the fully complex system, and then we say, okay, we've come to this conclusion. I'm not going to claim that this is exactly the way this works. This is exactly the way the brain works. But I've I've made very well rationalized choices in how I've created this model and how I've simplified it. You know, this I've undergone very rigorous scientific exploration of this system, you know, even though it's an in silico system as opposed to an in vitro or in vivo system. Now I've really narrowed down the dartboard, right? I can say with, you know, with a lot of supporting evidence that this seems to be the way this works. And now I turn to, you know, one of my collaborators and I say, hey, you know, I think that, the differences in these human neurons compared to rodent neurons is based upon the activity of this ion channel. You know, when I modeled the ion channel this way, my cell started to match more along the lines of what you're seeing experimentally. You know, I wonder if you can go in and isolate that and measure that and see if that prediction bears out. So, to, to me, the, the analogy I use to, you know for like my parents and people who are outside the, the scientific world and the academic world is I'm narrowing down the dartboard and I'm never gonna be able to give you the bullseye. I'm, that, that's not my job, but I'm gonna narrow that dartboard down so considerably that through this relationship with collaborators, through the, what I call the, the computational experimental loop Um, I can then expedite and facilitate and improve the actual experiments that are going to go and say, hey, this is how the brain works. And then in an ideal world, once that happens, that gives a new new data and a new understanding of the system and new details to implement into these models. And then that process and that cycle starts all over again. And I, I, I think that that's something where... The best science is done when we acknowledge those limitations. When we acknowledge, okay, you know, if I just, you know, if I'm patching a single cell, you know, I'm not going to understand the way the brain works by patching and perfectly understanding one neuron. It's going to help a whole heck of a lot. But if I can do science by acknowledging that, no, like I'm contributing my piece of the puzzle as opposed to trying to solve the whole thing, and especially with the brain, you know, <laughs> no one's going to solve the whole thing inherently, right? And me as a computational neuroscientist, I I view my role as I'm going to come up with the theory, I'm going to come up with the hypotheses that have a really, really, really strong support from my computational work. And hopefully, that's something that Either through it, that direct collaboration, or through someone reading my paper, you know, five years down the line, it's going to be like, oh, yep, we we saw exactly this. This you know proposed yeah. this experiment, we did it. You know, this is how it works.
0: I always or, think that that's like so cool when you do like when they're when you do an experiment and like for myself, for example, that I do a lot of you know the actual patching of the neurons themselves or the biology, the biological you know based experiments um and you get a certain result it might be weird or something like that and then you start scouring the literature and then you find a computational paper from like 20 years ago or something that completely predicted that response to occur and it's kind of wild when it's, you see those things happen
1: yeah there's there is something you know very satisfying about that i mean that that happened i was i've been very lucky that when i was when i was at the crimble brain institute i had you know amazing experimental collaborators, you know, patch clamp electrophysiologists. And, you know, we, we had this, a moment where I was working on something very mathy, very idealized, very abstract. And it made some really interesting predictions. I was like, Oh, you know, let me show you, you know, th- this cool result I had. And, and she goes, that's insane. Let <laughs> me show you what I've just been patching. Yeah. And like, this made no sense to me. But isn't this sort of what your computational stuff was predicting? I was like, heck, yes, it is. Yeah. And, and and that's what led to, you know, a, a paper in Cell Reports a few years back. Oh, cool. um, but, yeah, so those those type of moments are are definitely very satisfying. And, again, I think it, it sort of it goes to sort of what I was talking about earlier, which is those, you know, oh, duh moments where, you know, the, having the computational basis makes those quicker, right? Yeah. It facilitates that, it speeds that up. It gives us these, these new ideas to test and probe. Um, and then, you know, the reverse is also true as well. It's not always the computational stuff that's, not, that's, you know, feeding into the experimental stuff. The reverse is also true. If you have a ton of patch data from, you know, tons of different cells that you, you know, don't know how to approach... And you feed that to me as a computational person and I can, you know, I build the models. I understand the data. I, you know, understand how, you know, to make a model that replicates this. That, that just as much, you know, can lead to something where, you know, the experiment can feed into the computational and lead to an interesting mm-hmm. result, you know, from that computational result, you know, work, just like the computational can, you know, feed into the experimental and provide that impetus You know to do a new experiment yeah um so yeah i think
0: i always think you know it's sometimes i i think it's not necessarily portrayed always perfectly as to how blind um it is sometimes going in biologically to try to figure out how like a single piece of a a neural network in the actual living brain works i mean like just finding a cell itself is is a, a process but i almost equate it to like when you're trying to figure out the properties of an individual cell within a neural network in an actual living brain, it's almost like sticking your hand into, like blindfolded, sticking your hand into a bag full of a million marbles, and you grab one, and like each marble has its own unique scratches on it, you know, and you have to try to figure out which scratches are on that one individual marble in there without any input whatsoever. And so it's almost like, you know, in the computational data comes in, at least I've seen the benefits of it sometimes firsthand, is that you have someone that can run many simulations of models and things like that, and they can come back and they can narrow it down to, you know, here's the 15 likely scratches that are on there. And now it's so much easier. You can go, you can feel around and you go, oh yes, I see the circular scratch or something like that. Like that's on that neuron. And then you can test it. it. It saves so much time because there's I mean, essentially, because, you know, the brain's full of a bunch of unknowns yet, to an extent, it's almost like within the biophysical limits of reality, there's almost like an unlimited set of properties that we can uncover about a neuron when we don't yeah, know the, what we're looking for.
1: The parameter space is, is just way too, is way too big, right? And, and that's one of, the, one of the major parts of any sort of computational study is, is making an informed choice of how do i limit that parameter space how do i take a unapproachable problem and make it approachable and Mm -hmm. make it approachable in an informed consistent rationalized way so that yes even though i i have limited the parameter space i have simplified things down but here is a system that i can now understand here's a system that i can apply you know mathematical dynamical systems theory to Or here's a system that I can actually simulate in, you know, reasonable computational time. And then then we can say, okay, now let's go back and see if the predictions from this simplified system match the inherently more complex biological system. And a lot of times they do, and that's great. A lot of times they don't, and that's also great because then you say, okay, where's the disconnect? Yeah. And some, some of the most interesting things computationally can come about when, you know, if I make a prediction from my model that doesn't bear out, you know, that's not necessarily the end of the road. That means, okay, what, what did I miss, right? What parameter did I, you know, idealize a way that maybe is a lot more important than I thought, than, you know, than the literature thought or, you know, my reading of the data thought. You know, maybe there is some nuanced, you know, small ion channel that I, you know, say, oh, no one uses that in the model. I am not going to include that, but it turns out to be responsible for, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, property that you are interested in. I have to start training myself to say Z again. Six <laughs> years in Canada, I sa- I tra- finally trained myself to say Z. Now I am going back to the States, so I have to untrain myself. Um, you know, what's funny is that you-,
0: you know, because we've done we've you know we've done talks before um, on, on different platforms and uh wh- i used zd7288 a lot for the the h current which you know <laughs> is the current that we shall not talk about but <laughs> that shall not be named because it's caused everyone a headache in a lot of different studies but uh just cuz it's just, you know it's called the funny current cuz it's can be funny yeah. but but anyways um anytime that i am speaking or whatever i say zd7288 but for some reason in my head because i've heard you say it so many times i, I read ZD. it as zd seven. <laughs> So just, uh, yeah, no, it, I,
1: I got enough, you know, weird looks. Well, I'm a a dual citizen, but I, I grew up and, you know, spent most of my, you know, my whole life in the States before coming up here for postdocs. So, like, it, it it took like six months or a year, like, everyone giving me, you know, the stink eye when I said Z till finally (laughs) just like gave in and, you know, started saying Zed. And (laughs) it just made, made life a little bit easier.
0: Uh, that's funny. So, so with the, with the networks, you know, you highlighted at least, a, I think, which is a kind of a cool, important point, is that you know the the network or the the simulations or the models, the mathematical insights, they give you information that can be helpful, whether they work or if they don't work. Like if they don't work, you know that based on these parameter sets, there's likely something else going on that you have to then go and investigate. And I think that that's pretty cool that it's you know informative one way or another. But but when it comes to selecting like the parameters that go into a single network or a single neuron within a network that you're simulating, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are unknown, a lot of currents channels, all of these things that we don't exactly, we don't know how to specifically test biologically or even, you know, let's just say something like glial cells that may have an influence on the network, but a lot of the models don't necessarily include their, their influence. And so is there, you know, a, a pro and a con of having sort of sparse networks when it comes to understanding the information, if that makes sense? You know, is there? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the,
1: the way I, I view it is that there is a, there's a, every computational study is a sort of a balancing act between, you know, the abstract and the biophysically detailed. And what type of model do you use, whether using, you know, just a super abstract neuron model that's, you know, just like a probabilistic process, or whether you're using a, you know, multi-compartment based model with, you know, 20 different ionic channels that's, you know, done in, in neuron that, you know, takes, you know, crazy long to simulate, you know, it, it's, a, it's a choice that you have to make consciously for the study and for the questions that you're trying to answer. I always say that you know model generation should in my opinion should be hypothesis driven. So depending on the questions we're trying to answer, depending on the phenomena that we're interested in, that is what in my opinion drives how much detail we're going to include. You know, whether we're going to use this abstract neuron model or it's going to be something super detailed, whether we're going to, you know, try to model glial cells or try to model, you know, adaptation or bursting or some more complex mechanism that you might not, you know, see in your sort of, you know, basic, you know, you know, out of the box neural network. And the the reason that's so important is you can get bogged down in the details. Right. If I create a model that's needlessly complex, my output is also going to be that complex. Mm. And sort of just like we, you know, we were talking about earlier, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes I'm looking at something complex and nuanced. But other times that complexity is just taking a hard problem and porting it to a different system and keeping it a bit, keeping it a hard problem. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if, and, and again, it's, this, this was something that I I always remember a, a moment during my PhD when, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the Human Brain Project. Yeah. And there was, there was that, you know, the whole push to, to mo- you know, create a full scale model of the human brain. And it, it, whether it was a successful endeavor or not is a matter for debate of people who are much more established than I am, but I was talking about this with my PhD advisors, and I said, oh, like, this is so cool. Like, I can't help but I would love to work on something like this one day. And they just, you know, they looked at me and they went, you know, well, okay, well, what are you going to learn from this? I was like, what are you talking about? You know, it's our, for if the brain's on the computer, are like, what the heck are you going to do? I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's a really good question.
0: Yeah, If I yeah, can't
1: understand... <laughs> Yeah, if I can't understand the brain in its real system, what does just porting that onto a computer yeah. add to the add to? The, and it, and it does, you know, that it, it's an obvious oversimplification, right? You know, yeah. there there there's a lot of you know really interesting things you can do with that. But if you're trying to get at the you know the mechanistic understandings of how you know. Oscillatory dynamics arise in the brain, or how, you know, a seemingly healthy network, you know, suddenly, you know, turns into a, you know, a a seizing network. You know, you have to get at the how and the why questions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the, the sometimes being overly complex, just because you can be, obscures those how and those why questions. Whereas if I if I simplify it and I say, okay, you know, let's, let's tone this down a little bit, but, oh, now I've understood things. Now I've got that there, you know, now I can make that prediction of to the how of the why of the mechanism and then build things back up and start to see, okay, you know, does this work when I add this back in, does this work when I add this back in, does this work when you're actually doing it in, you know, in the patch setting or something like that. So again, always it,
0: it's, I, I always thought, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of cool, actually, that for a lot of the – especially with the human, human Brain Project and stuff like that, um, where the output or you know, the insights gain is – it almost seems like it is a, a pretty functional full brain. But in, in reality, it's almost somewhat infinitely limited because you're only able to put in what's already been discovered to an extent.
1: You know, and, yeah. and
0: it's so it's always like interesting to me that you can somewhat create, for the most part, relatively similar functions of what the brain is creating without having all of the constitutive parts, especially for like isolated mechanism. I think that's kind of cool.
1: And, and then, you know, the, the idea of, you know, of interesting computational neuroscience is to try to do something that you couldn't do experimentally or it would be really hard or really expensive to do experimentally, Right. You know, can I, you know, perfectly block this channel without any side effects in my model in a way that you couldn't do experimentally. Right. Mm. And so taking that next step of trying to do something in a model that you couldn't do otherwise is, is something that I think is very important. And that's where I think, That's how computational neuroscience pushes the conversation forward, as opposed to, you know, saying, oh, you know, yep, this is something we've seen. We've done it in our model. You know, we can confirm, you know, we can understand it a little bit better. Hugely important. That's a huge portion of my work. But, you know, the, the stuff that moves the conversation forward is when we say, here's something I can do in my model that maybe we can't quite do yet experimentally. Yeah, and maybe that helps us to understand and think about that next step experiment, and think about that technology to maybe five or ten years down the line, because of the predictions that the the computational setting affords us.
0: Yeah, just working together seamlessly with the uh, experimentalists. It's, I think it's it's a brute force method that works very very well compared yeah, to no, it's, just going in blindly. The,
1: the best computational neuroscience is collaborative. It is yeah. interdisciplinary. Yeah. And there is, you know, there's very pure math, you know, neuroscience that is done. And again, it's hugely interesting and hugely challenging and hugely impactful. But there is almost a ceiling to, mm. you know, to, to the applications of that. And I think that, you know, at least in my personal experience, once you're collaborating and you have that sort of, you know, cyclical relationship with the experimentalists, that's when things really start to accelerate and you start to get some of those interesting, you know, non-intuitive, you know, surprising results.
0: Yeah, it gives the gives insight into it. So speaking of cyclical and application wise, I know you did a bit of work on, yeah, I like that segue. <laughs> no. uh, I know you did a bit of work on synchrony, neural synchrony. And I obviously, from a personal bias standpoint, I'm very interested in neural synchrony with my own research as well. Uh, but so, so, you know, I, I saw you were doing some work with heterogeneity of, uh, Different cell types or different neuron types within um, different networks, and looking at it in, the, in terms of epilepsy and stuff like that. But so, how did you get involved in you know studying neurosynchrony synchrony, or, or what's some some of the work that you're doing in that in that area?
1: Yeah, so my
0: my doctoral research was
1: sort of very focused on gamma oscillations and gamma rhythms, and there's this this sort of seminal work in the field by sort of by Nancy Capell and Christoph Borgers, where they articulate what they call the ping mechanism, pyramidal interneuron network gamma. And yeah. it's a very, it's a very nice, clean, straightforward articulation of how a network of excitatory and inhibitory neurons, you know, very simple and straightforward can through their mutual interactions lead to, you know, a gamma oscillation. And
0: a gamma and oscillation is this, Is that just like a certain speed at which the neurons yeah so gamma
1: is you know 30 to 50 hertz or so i'm probably butchering that and you know people have different opinions on the ranges (laughs) um but yeah but basically it's you know it's a oscillation frequency that is sort of implicated in various you know sort of memory function memory storage and retrieval um functions throughout the brain um and What's nice about that is that the study of oscillating phenomena is something that math has a lot to say about. The, you know, dynamical systems theory and differential equations, you know, has a lot to say about how a system might, you know, theoretically, abstractly can oscillate. And so, you know, that was sort of the focus of my grad studies. And then as I transitioned in, the, in the, my postdoc, there was a sort of natural segue into the study of epilepsy because, just like you know, it, it, a gamma rhythm is a sort of physiologically relevant, functionally relevant dynamic and oscillation. A seizure is a pathological, you know, dangerous negative oscillation, and what differentiates them is oftentimes pretty subtle. You
0: know,
1: yeah. seizures, the rhythms and seizures, you know, tend to, you know, they're typically classified as hypersynchronous and hyperactive. You know, there's, there's yeah. more cells that are participating, you know, tighter together, and they're firing at faster frequencies. And there are, there are other nuances in terms of what makes, you know, I'm by no means an epileptologist, right? But there, there are certain things that an epileptologist looks at and says, okay, you know, that's a seizure-like oscillation, or this is an oscillation that's more physiological. But it's a it's an interesting question because what what differentiates those two is is something that's very subtle mm. and if we think about our our brains as something that has to exhibit some degree of synchrony and synchrony is another one of those that d- d- when you're defining terminology is as you know very very important and in, yeah. when you're when you're crossing you know math and neuroscience disciplines it gets even more tenuous um, so oh, I've seen synchrony the I'm defining that
0: have ensued. Oh, yeah. Conferences. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I'm defining synchrony very, very broadly here. Um, but, uh, you know, some sort of synchronous dynamics are necessary to get any sort of oscillations that again, you know, whether or not they're functionally relevant is one of those other questions that people argue about at conferences all the time, but our brain's certainly doing it and how we can how our brains can oscillate in a functionally relevant way without and protecting against a pathologically, you know, debilitating seizure is something that I think is a, is a fascinating question. And what the, the work that you were uh, alluding to what we were able to show is that uh, essentially it, it all boils down to this idea of bifurcations, which is a math, you know, a mathematical term of, You know how you can get a sudden shift in the dynamics of a system through a very subtle change in a parameter of interest if i'm thinking about a mathematical system i go from having you know i can go from having one fixed point stable you know equilibrium point insert terminology here to having multiple and when that happens that you know really changes the dynamics of the system and there's a ton of work in sort of computational epilepsy research, a lot of this, uh, you know, Victor Jersa's work on the epileptor and things like that, showing that there are a lot of similarities between how the brain transitions into seizure and what we would expect from certain types of mathematical bifurcations. So there's this very interesting interesting parallel there. And so what we did is we said, okay, does this heterogeneity in the brain, which is something that my, my colleagues who are in the patch clamp world spent a lot of time characterizing in this uh, human brain tissue that we're lucky enough to have access to. Does that heterogeneity serve a purpose? And what we found is, theoretically, it does theoretically, when you have the levels of heterogeneity that we see in the, in the healthy brain, you don't have these bifurcations, these sudden shifts in dynamics. But if you Uh, decrease that level of heterogeneity, you homogenize the system in a way that we also have experimental data indicating that actually happens in epilepsy actually happens in epileptogenic tissue. Then all of a sudden that same network is vulnerable to these bifurcations it will exhibit these sudden transitions computationally if i simulate the network if i simplify things down and i look at it from a mathematical perspective it will show these you know mathematically classify you know saddle node bifurcations so it was something where we were able to trace this you know across various spatial scales across sort of different levels of abstraction in the computational models to say here is this phenomena that we observed experimentally is this serving a function it certainly seems to be because mm-hmm. with this heterogeneity you see more physiological activity without it and, and that's all we change you see this pathological activity and that's something that was is was a you know a fascinating project that you know was, that was actually the, the project I was alluding to earlier, where we had this sort of, you yeah. know, eureka moment of the computational and the, the experimental worlds matching and overlapping. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's, it's one of these, it's one of these aha moments, because we know that biological systems are diverse, are heterogeneous. If we yeah. think about the world from an evolutionary biologist's perspective, of course, variability and heterogeneity are necessary and good. I shouldn't say good because that describes like a moral value <laughs> to something scientific. <laughs> again, terminology be being important here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but again, you know, that's how evolutionary, evolution acts, yeah. right? But then you, you can, you know, you can take the other perspective and you say, okay, if I'm an engineer, heterogeneity is bad right? I don't want each of my bricks to be different. I want every brick to be exactly the darn same so that I can predict, build a system, uh, a building that I can predict is going to be stable and sturdy and is going to act the way it acts. Sure. So for, for me, intuitively, it made sense, okay, you know, the heterogeneity that we saw experimentally in the brain, you no, know, seems like it would have this sort of protective capacity, it would make these you know, super rigid rhythms that we think about for a seizure, less likely to occur. But it's something that is, you know, depending on your perspective that you're coming from, isn't necessarily that straightforward. And that's where the math and the computation comes into play, where we can develop the theory, run the simulations to show that, you know, even as subtle of a change as this and the, not the means of our system, but the, you know, the error bars of our system, yeah. are in itself enough to change these dynamics significantly.
0: So it's you, you unlocked an aha, like 10 aha moments for me in that. There we kind of go. That's, that's the goal. <laughs> but, and, and I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick your brain on it just because, because it's so fascinating. But, you know, the, uh, when it comes to synchronous, at least from the way that I study synchronous neural networks, you know, we study it from the, the actual recording from the cells and we see them go like, you know, together and create these dynamic oscillations of, of rhythmic activity. And one of the ideas that I have actually, uh, that I had actually when I was studying the the age current, funny enough, um, was, you know, the current we shall not speak of, but, but the, uh, <laughs> that's how I refer to it in the field as well. So, <laughs> but But, you know, I had the idea that within individual cells themselves, they contain sort of what I termed, which I'll get butchered for, but that's okay. I'll put myself out there. Um, Like buffer currents. Essentially, you know, if a perturbation were to come into the system and we're looking at opioids uh, that was acting to hyperpolarize all the the neurons within that network, that it would turn on to try to repolarize them to keep the system in sort of an attractor space of an area that it can create these oscillations of general accessibility. Okay. And so that was the theory that we were testing. And, and when I blocked you know, the, the H current, I prevented those cells from repolarizing. Not surprisingly that the uh, amount of opiates it took to shut down the network was significantly less, right? And so it didn't have sort of that intrinsic repolarizing type of of boost to act against, um, you know, the opioids. And so, I, you know, sort of that idea that there's these currents that are somewhat latent within some of the, the networks that are synchronous, that their primary function isn't necessarily to contribute to the spiking of the neurons themselves, but rather to act when a perturbation comes in to try to like try to hyperpolarize a network, it turns on so you have sort of these buffer or these sync type of, of currents that are a protective mechanism. That was sort of the pie in the sky hypothesis. And, you know, it, it worked out for opioids. And if we gave CNQX to block glutamatergic signaling to sort of d- depress a lot of the neuronal activity, it worked. And so that was a very, very gross over-interpretation of, you know, some of the implications. And we did some multi-electrode array recordings of a couple hundred neurons at the same time. I mean, it used some of those neuropixel, those fancy things to see all the, the spikings. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of cool because, you know, the tonic neurons, which are always, you know, within a synchronous network, you have the bursting neurons, which like make a, a large portion of the, the actual big oscillations. And then, I mean depending on the network or whatever. Uh, You know, in ours, in our network, we have spiking silent and like these big bursting type of neurons. And so there was all these, you know, we're looking at these oscillations, which are these big rhythmic events. And so, you know, we have 90% of the population that are just tonically spiking. And you're like, eh, they're there. I don't know what they do. (laughs) But uh, anyways, it was like, that those currents that were turning on seemed to correlate with the excitability that kept it in a range such that it could create oscillations. And it seemed to correlate with the spiking of the the tonic neurons. And so the tonic neurons seemed to be providing, you know, the tonic excitation or inhibition in order to sort of keep the network in a range where it was was being able to oscillate. And so I know this is getting long winded, but but going from yeah, so this was this this is where the aha moment came in is that instead of focusing on you know individual currents on these networks because that's almost assuming that there's somewhat of a homogeneous like a homogeneous distribution of the neurons. This is why I themselves. thought you were gonna go with this, yeah, yeah. And you know the the thing that's always bugged me, and you know the the soapbox that I stand on sometimes, uh, for better or worse, is that when you're looking at like a lot of the uh, genotypically defined regions of the brain, you're looking at a single marker. You're looking at, you know, Vglut one, Vglut two, or, or tyrosine hydroxylase, whatever it is that you're looking at to, to define those neurons themselves. You're looking at a single transcription factor or a single RNA, um, in order to figure out what type of neuron there is. And all that that means is that that neuron expresses that particular enzyme or that particular, genetic information it doesn't mean that that's the only thing that it expresses so like you have all these neurons that light up for glutamatergic and so we have this you know population of glutamatergic cells that are let's say vglut positive th negative and it's like great they express glutamate they don't express tyrosine hydroxylase so they're not dopaminergic or noradrenergic. but within those 500 cells or whatever that also express glutamate there's 500 different cells like they're all their own unique cell. And so exactly when we go in and we patch individual cells that express a common transcription factor, we get different results sometimes when we get variability and there's sort of two thoughts on it. And I, I tend to favor just including everything and to just say that there is variability and some of it could be because they express a common transcription factor, but it's not the only thing that they express. And so there's a lot of different cells within there. And, you know, the other kind of thought is that there's, you know, some sort of bad patching type of things that are going on and, you know, whatever will duel to the death. But but it's interesting that you're finding that when you change, you know, the distribution of morphologies within the within or the distribution of of whatever homogeneity or heterogeneity within the network, that it does have a big effect.
1: Yeah. And so. It, you know it, exactly what you talked about is part of why I think this this question and this perspective is is so interesting and something that you know I hope I'm gonna be able to you know pursue successfully in my lab is what happens when we are just as interested in the error bars as we are in the means what happens when that my, my heart when, when, scott <laughs> yeah when when that's a feature and not a bug right yeah. and that, you know it, it's something where at least in the computational world there's there's start you know there, there's more and more papers now that you know have me very excited where they're starting to look at this um, but the the tendency is okay here's some classically defined cell type Here's the mean resting membrane potential. Here's the mean spiking activity, the mean FI curve. Let's create a model of this mean neuron. And again, that's, that is a necessary abstraction to start the process. But then the next question I think is, okay, well, we just lost a ton of interesting data and interesting information by just looking at those means. Right, and creating a mean neuron, a single model neuron that we're then going to replicate a thousand times or whatever you know, depending on what type of network you're interested in. So then the question becomes: Well, what if we try and again? You know, it becomes you can't you know create a model for every neuron that you patch. You know, that takes way more money and way more grad students than you know that I'm certainly ever going to have. Um, but what if we we come up with a informed strategic way to take that into account, to take that variability that, that you're, you're observing, right? This is something that isn't made up. You know, this is something that you're seeing experimentally. What happens when we consider that in our computational models? And, you know, a lot of the work that I've, you know, been, been lucky enough to do with uh, with Jeremy Lefebvre and Taufik Valiente and Homer baradi uh, and Axel Hutt, you know, looks at that, you know, ranging from the experimental to the very mathy side of things where we say like, when we take that into account, really interesting things change about how these systems work. And so if that's causing these systems from a computational or mathematical perspective to change so significantly, it stands to reason that maybe that is serving some functional role in the in vivo, in vitro setting, where we measured this from the start with. Yeah. And again, the, the thing that, you know, is the, the the coolest part of that cell reports paper I mentioned is the fact that, you know, the, the take-home experimental finding that we found was a significant reduction in not the mean excitability, but the variability of excitability when you mm. compare it healthy control tissue to tissue taken from the epileptogenic zone, taken directly from the clinically diagnosed region of the brain, the patient that's sort of generating seizure, or believed that generates seizures in patients. And you see a significant reduction in this variability. The means are pretty similar, but you see a reduction in the variability of these, you know, sort of baseline excitability measures. And it's a question that for for me as a computational scientist is is very rich because there's infinitely many papers out there that are all showing me those error bars but we're not really talking about it right yeah. when you when you read a nature paper you're looking to find this you know statistical significance you know between the means you're not interested in how wide those error bars are but if that's a feature and not a bug we've just made our data sets infinitely richer i shouldn't say infinitely because i'm a mathematician and i should know better <laughs> but, and and so again there's there are a lot of questions i think are going to benefit from this a sort of new perspective you know yeah. both experimentally where you're looking at these as you know a feature of the system and not a bug And then computationally, where you're creating models with this variability in mind and understanding how is that actually influencing the system. And again, this is something where I would argue, partially because I need to argue this to justify my existence, (laughs) but I would argue that this is a type of question that you need a computational scientist for, because I can go into my models and in a relatively straightforward way play with these heterogeneity levels, change yeah. the amount of variability in these cells. I have to imagine it's going to be pretty darn hard for you to design an experimental protocol to control for that. And I know that's something that a bunch of my colleagues are, you know, are working really hard at and are have are doing some really amazing things at. But it's it's certainly a lot harder than changing a parameter in a model. Yeah.
0: Well I know like it's- my my first paper as a postdoc, well, you know, it was funny because I'd I worked on goats as a graduate student, as the model system. And so not, not that we had a relatively um, easier time for peer review because we certainly didn't. But at some point, you know, it's almost like a question of it's a it's a goat. And so sometimes it has behavioral things because it's awake and it's alert. And it's a large animal. And so the sometimes the, the ability for you to dive super deep goes away right because you can't access mm-hmm. some of the things you can in a mouse and so you you can answer some big picture questions but with that you know becomes a little bit less easy to critique some it's of the, a, it's a trade-off yeah it's, it's a it's trade-off like... and, and and so with um you know when i moved into rodents then i really started to uh to understand a little bit more of you know and i and i love the goats because you really get an understanding of the whole physiology and how it all comes together but but with the rodents, you got into individual cell types and individual currents and, and all these things that were very nuanced. And like I said, with the, the opioids, um, my first project as a postdoc was trying to just create a, a cure, right? A, create a reverse. is That's the easy thing to do, right? <laughs> and, you know, I was testing all these brain slices and I was giving them the opioids and There was this gigantic (laughs) variance. Like some of the slices you know, didn't even respond to the opioids. Some of them went faster. Some of them went slower. Like there was this gigantic variability. And when you did enough of them, you did 100 slices, you got your dose-dependent reduction in activity. Sure, fine. And if you did enough, your error bars look good for a graph and you could make it. And what I put in the paper, the first paper that I I published as a postdoc in, I think, yeah, it was in J Neuroscience, um, was – I just put a darkened bar for the mean and I put all of the points. And I said, this is the variance that you get when you're trying to create a universal cure for this thing. There's, you know, just as many slices that are not responding or going faster as there are that are becoming depressed by the drug. And, and so we tackled it by looking at the individual very, vari- or the individual excitability state of the slice. When you applied the opiate and figured out a, a systematic way to control for the excitability slices or the excitability of the network itself. And when you could control for the actual individual excitability of the network, they all behave the same. But the problem is, is that at baseline, everyone's at a different excitability level, depending on all the different inputs. And so you could sort of, we tackled the variability instead of the actual, you know phenomenon of the depression itself because the depression was only relevant if all of the slices were under the same condition which is never the case out in the field and so yeah it's it's interesting that not only you know because again that assumes that there's a homogeneous network and that all of this all of the brains are at a different point along you know there's there's a back it up there's a homogenous network that can go along a spectrum of excitability and all of the slices are just distributed along that, that distribution at some point. But with the fact that there's, there's individual variants of how each of the networks is actually made up, (laughs) you know, it, it, it makes the problem more complex, but in a good way, because now, like you said, instead of fearing some of that variability, I think, I think it really is groundbreaking to the point that we can say, like, the variance, as long as, again, assuming that it's a good measurement, good measurement techniques, anything like that, that the variance isn't something to fear, necessarily. It's something that gives us information.
1: It doesn't necessarily mean that your data is wrong or bad if there is variability, right? And this is something where, again, you know, I'm coming at this from a very biased perspective of, you know, a lot of my postdoctoral work was, you know, focus on this, but you, this was, you know, I, I keep saying, you know, oh, duh moments, you know, when we were, you know, talking about this, and this is a, you know, a sort of idea that has been, you know, percolating in Dr. Valiente's head for a while, you know, if you look at the literature, there's a lot of these sort of, you know, breadcrumbs there, right? You look at, some of the more recent, you know, big RNA-seq, you know, transcriptomic studies. And you look at the classically defined cell types and you say, oh, well, you know, even within this classically defined cell type, the the RNA-seq, you know, the UMAP distributions, they, they look more like this sort of, you know, bubble in this, you know, cluster than, you know, this yeah. really tight point. And, oh, all of these different cell types are actually sort of, you know, they're not spatially segregated in... You know, principal component space—they're sort of bumping up against each other. So, you know, the the analogy I like to use is that these—you know—these cell types have been, you know, these borders that we have put down to help ourselves. They're immensely useful. They've—they've they've simplified the problem, but they are inherently artificial. Yeah. Right. We have we have put onto the system these you know these borderline markings of what is this type of cell what is that type of cell and every once in a while i think we have to sort of back up and say okay you know can we improve the, these borders are these borders necessary this sounds much more political than i intended to when I, was I to was just start down same, this. yeah that, that was again term terminology choice not i not in as intended there but it, it, no, you know again yeah you, yeah. You, yeah and and then you go and you look at the EFIS properties and you go oh you know these EFIS properties are within the same cell type are varying on the order of you know tens of milliseconds for the you know the membrane time constant or you know tens of millivolts for the resting membrane potential and yeah. you can say oh, okay you know these recordings are really hard to do maybe this is you know challenges in the recordings and and that's a very viable you know justification reason but i think that experimentalists are pretty darn good at their jobs, at least the ones I know. And so if someone came to me with this data and said, you know, hey, you know, these are these are varying a lot, you know, my gut reaction wouldn't necessarily be, oh, well, you you must have done something wrong. Your, your, your setup must have been screwed up. i would be like, that's, that's something that's worth investigating and worth thinking about.
0: Yeah, which I think is, I I mean, mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's especially I mean, I can tell you coming from an experimentalist background that's something that is i think something that could be addressed going forward for a lot of programs is is that you know oftentimes the first gut reaction when you're when you're learning how to do experiments and stuff like that you come up and you have big error bars and something that you did and again there's always inherent problems with experimental preparations and things like that that we can't ignore but at the same time if it's done sound if it's done right and it's done reproducibly and you come back, and there are these big error bars. You're you're typically taught that something is wrong, and you need to go back and figure mm-hmm. out why you have all of this error, and you need to get rid of it. And I think a lot of that comes, you know, from being somewhat ball and chained to st- like some statistical analyses. Is just yeah. what it is. It's just what it is, you know. But so, but this say- is
1: why this is why you want to have a computational friend. You go yeah. to a computational person and say. Oh, here are my error bars, and then I say that's interesting. Let's go. Let me go look at some simplified system and yeah. see whether this makes a difference or not. Right, and we can come up with some baseline simplified idea of delay of the land. If I go into my model and I, you know, add in the variability that you've said, and all of a sudden things are acting in a way that makes absolutely no sense. Okay, maybe maybe something went awry. Yeah. But if I add in this variability that you've added, and things are working, maybe they're actually working a little bit better. Maybe they're looking a little bit more like the real world situation. Then, then maybe we found something interesting, right? And, and again, I think that's something where that that is something as a computational person. I can't tell you whether you you did your experiment right or not, but yeah. I can tell you whether whether your whether your your initial findings make sense. And I think that's, some, you know, that's something where, again, if you're working in a collaborative interdisciplinary environment and you have those relationships, you know, across in vitro and silico and vivo, you know, neuroscience across the various spatial scales of, you know, what things you're doing in vitro and even computationally, you know, you broaden those perspectives and you broaden the the types of people you can sort of bounce those ideas off of before you, you know, go back to that initial reaction of, oh, something might something must
0: be wrong yeah you're going to be infinitely uh a great utility in that department (laughs) i hope so
1: i mean (laughs) they hired me for some reason so i guess they must think that too
0: yeah yeah well you know i'm just thinking in my head that you know the the how how useful it could be again not to say that I always have to caveat it with it's like it's not a crux to say that there are no bad experiments. There are some bad experiments that induce artificial variability. But again, if it's done sound and it's done correct and you come in and suddenly you have ideas as to what could be causing this variation. Again, if you have a blueprint of things to test, it's sometimes it's a lot easier to just go in and test based on a list of things that could biophysically be causing it than it is to just start just fishing for answers, you know, and, uh, to be able to, and again, if if, it test. Yeah. If, if, if I can come in and you can explain your, your
1: system and your setup and your experiment to me, I can say, that's really freaking cool. Let me see what I can do. And I can say, Oh, you know, don't go fishing over there, (laughs) you know, throw, throw your rod over here. There, there might be something down there. Yeah, You know, that, that makes that makes everyone happy. That advances the science. And again, that's something where, you know, that collaborative interdisciplinary, you know, way of thinking and way of, you know, expanding what neuroscientific research is is something that is going to just, is going to improve how we understand the brain, which is hopefully is neuroscientists what our, all of our end goals are.
0: I'm going to have to change your contact email picture to a fish finder. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate science fish finder. But oh, anyways, geez. we're coming up on uh we're coming up on an hour. So Scott, thanks so much for coming on, man. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was, uh, this was crazy informative. And now I'm, I can't even, I was going to keep check of the amount of aha moments, but you know, I ran out of fingers. So. <laughs> there we go that's it's always super, a good to hear. yeah i needed you i needed you when we were going back and forth you know for the seventh round of revisions about the variability paper but <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah no we, we we had our own uh our own review horror stories of, of fighting yeah. that uphill battle with,
0: yeah. with
1: with that type with that perspective for sure
0: <laughs> that's all right we'll keep fighting the fight <laughs> exactly but uh yeah man so congrats again once again on uh landing that position that's fantastic it's a great department Thank you, sir. obviously we've had some collaborations with them as well and amazing group of neuroscientists so you can only add to the amazing pedigree that already is at that uconn department so that's fantastic that, that's the plan <laughs> yeah so all right man well if uh, if anyone wants to get uh in touch with your work or anything like that is there is there anything that they can look up what you're doing yeah
1: i mean um Find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, at Rich... I guess it's not Twitter. It's X for yeah, X. whatever reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm Rich Comp Neuro on there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my personal website is scottrich.strikingly.com because I'm a poor postdoc for at least a few more months and i paying <laughs> not paying to get the strikingly out of my name. Um, but yeah, this is something where, you know, ho- hopefully... I've gotten across here that I, I love collaborating. And I think that that's the way that neuroscience, you know, in science generally should be done. So if this is, I'm always open to chat. I'm always open to, you know, you know, computational neuroscience, as you, as you might have guessed from my, you know, background story is, is it can be a a bit of a winding road to get there. So if that's something I'm always, you know, really open to, to mentoring and sort of helping people find that path that this is something that they're interested in. So, so please reach out, you know, my email contacts are all over those places. Um, and I,
0: I'd, I'd love to chat. And just an all around awesome guy. So, anyways.
1: Well, I mean, we've only <laughs> ever met over Zoom, so I'm not sure how uh. definitively you can say that, but I, I, I'll, I'll take the com- I'll take the compliment nonetheless. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So rss.com slash network. Uh, you can find sort of the, the hub for all of the, the different episodes, but otherwise Apple, Spotify, Google, any major podcast player we are on there. One of these days, we'll get the website back up and uh, updated and running. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime... Thanks again for uh, joining the neural network. Have a good week.